usually when I uh, preach, I, uh, my target is, is the body of Christ, it's the army. And uh, what we're trying to do here usually on, on Sunday mornings is to uh, feed the army, motivate the army, instruct the army, and send them out and blast the world. Once in a while, I like to talk to a different audience, still talking to the army. Uh, the Bible says that we should, in 1 Peter chapter 3, that even those in the army, those who are believers, should have a, be prepared to give a reason or defense for the hope that they have within in them. And so I'm going to be talking to the army in terms of developing an awareness of, of the evidential foundation for the hope that you have within you. But I'm also talking here to people this morning who are maybe wondering what this is all about. Um, you saw a bunch of people get kind of excited and into it uh, when we were worshiping the Lord, and my hands are still aching. Oh, by the way, uh, this is not because I'm going to hit anybody or box or whatever, but uh, this, these, I need these uh, when I'm hitting those conga drums because I play them so lightly. So, <clears throat> what I want to do is, is here just share some of the reasons why I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The question that I'm dealing with here this morning is, is, is in a nutshell this. Who is Jesus Christ? And believers need to know why they believe it, and unbelievers need to confront those reasons. The question is, as old as Christianity, in fact it's older, Jesus himself asked the question. It's found in Matthew chapter 16. Lord, on my voice here, I, I've had a cold the last couple days, and it's a little bit weak, but the Lord can use it, even if I just phlegm my way through this thing. Now when the people in the front row just started praying. <laughs> now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? What's out there on the street? What's people's opinion about me? And so they gave him the theories. They're pretty much the same as the theories are today. He said, uh, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, and others think that you're Elijah, or still others, Jeremiah, or you're one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you think that I am? Who do you say that I am? Let's make it personal. Let's take it out of the realm of the theoretical and the abstract, and let's make it personal. What do you think about me? Do you think I'm just one of the prophets up there with Elijah and Jeremiah and the rest? Or am I something different to you? And Peter was always the first to answer, for better or for worse. He said, you are the Messiah. You're the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, but this hasn't been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. The question here is this, who is Jesus Christ? You saw a lot of people, and we've been engaged in this this morning, getting kind of emotional about Jesus Christ. But the question is, why do people believe in him in the first place? And to ask that question, you should appeal not to your emotion, but appeal to your mind. We all this last week read about this, uh, heard about this group in San Diego, this unfortunate misled group of people in San Diego uh, who took their own life, 39 people took their own life because they wanted to jump on a spaceship they thought was behind this comet that's been in the air uh, recently. The leader of the group was a man, he was fired from a college for having a homosexual relationship with a student and he, had a, he cracked up and spent some time in a psychiatric institute and somehow had a near-death experience, and a nurse told him that he needs to preach his gospel to the world, and he went out and started this cult. And remarkably enough, he got people to follow him. And 
The final message was that the gateway to heaven is going to be closed when this comet goes by, so we need to jump on that gateway right now. And there's a spaceship full of aliens in the tail of the comet, and if we leave our bodies behind, we could join them. And so they all took their own life. And I don't know what you do when I, what you do when you read an article like that, but I just, I, I, I just stop and I, 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 I just, I'm totally dumbfounded. How is it possible for people in the 20th century to do stuff like this? It's, it's unbelievable. But I wish it was an isolate. It's not. You've got people joining the Jim Jones cult and drinking Kool-Aid over in Guyana to kill themselves. And you've got the people down in Waco, Texas. And all over the place, there are people believing weird doctrines, astounding teachings, weird people. And the reason is because they don't think about what they believe. I'm sure that it at some level felt reasonable to these people. It must have hit some chord. They probably could get really excited and they felt good and da-da-da-da-da. But they didn't stop to think about what they believed. You know, the Bible never encourages people to have blind faith. It never does. What the Bible does, what the Lord does in Isaiah chapter 1, he says, come, let us reason together. It's great to get emotional. It's great to get excited. I don't think you can know who the Lord is and experience his resurrection power and not get really excited and emotional about that. At the same time, it's so important to balance that. And not just have an emotional frenzy, but to balance it with some clear-headed thinking. But for some reason in our culture, this is why we have groups like this, when it comes to faith, when it comes to thinking about God, when it comes to thinking about the person of Jesus Christ, people shut off their brains. There's this idea that, you know, you just got to believe it, you just got to, you know, feel your way forward. Here's what feels true to me, what feels true to you, here's what I think is right, here's what, here's what I like to believe, you hear that a lot, here's what I like to believe. But the question is, why do you believe it? What is rational about it? What is the evidence for it? If the people in San Diego would have asked that question, is there any evidence for what we're believing, they wouldn't have killed themselves. The Lord says, come, let us reason, in Isaiah chapter 1. Come, let us reason. Let's think this out. Let's talk this out. The Lord Jesus told us to love the Lord thy God with all your heart. That's what we did here in worship. All your heart. But also with all your mind. With all your mind. And it is no compliment to God when we decide to believe in him or believe in whatever mindlessly. He gave us our reason for a reason. We know this in ordinary life. We always use our reason and we look at evidence and ordinary decision right out of check. There's maybe a little bit of a risk involved there. You know, you're taking a little bit of a leap of faith. Oh, I just pray, Lord, that is enough. But hopefully there's some reason behind it too. Hopefully you've balanced in the last year or so. When you get on a plane, it takes a little bit of faith for sure. You're never certain. The planes do crash, but it's a reasonable thing to do. When you go to the doctor, you expect a reasonable explanation for what's wrong with you. We operate on the basis of reason and on the basis of evidence in every other area of our life. Why, when we come to thinking about God, do we just shut that valve off? Sometimes people say, well, it's just, even some Christians think, well, it's just, you know, it's just too rational and too carnal to really just try to come up with reasons and evidences for the faith. It's too important to use your reason. In these kind of matters, you just got to believe. But we don't, in ordinary life, decide that because something is important, it's too important to think about it, to use reason about it. My stepmother was recently very, very ill, and they thought she might even die. And they had to make a decision, should they operate on her or not? Should they operate or not? And her life hung in the balance. If they operate, there's a certain chance that uh, they're going to lose her. If they don't operate, there's a certain chance they're going to lose her. They weren't quite sure what was wrong. And life and death, death hung, in the, hung in the balance. But they didn't say, oh, this is so important. Well, we just can't think about it. We just got to believe, you know. Okay, we'll, we'll have surgery. Or okay, we won't have surgery. 
No, because it's important, you got to think about it. You got to look at the evidence. You got to think carefully. Now, you got to make a decision. And that's how it is in life. You got to make a decision. You don't have all the time in the world to sit back and think, oh, someday I maybe we'll get around to it. You might die tonight. Life is a pressure cooker. That's the way it is, folks. You, you, you got to take a risk. But the question is, what is a reasonable risk? And especially when you're asking the question, who is Jesus Christ? There above all, it's so important to say, okay, what, what should I think about him? What is the evidence? What does reason say? You also listen to your heart. Don't shut off your heart. But don't follow your heart if your head's not involved in the matter either. That's how you end up in some San Diego cult. What I want to do is briefly share four sets of reasons why I believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. The popular opinion today, and it was the popular opinion back then, is to make Jesus just one of the gang. To say that Jesus Christ is a great man, a great moral teacher, a great prophet. The sort of doctrine of today is, is, is to say, well, you know, he's, he's right up there with Buddha. He's right up there with Muhammad. His teachings are great. We live by his example. But then again, he's just one of the ways to get there. You know, we each have our own way. And, and no one really knows. So you just can't believe. I want to share with you the reasons why I believe that he was not just another teacher. With all due respect to Muhammad, with all due respect to Buddha, I think there's great insights in Confucius. I like those guys. I read those guys. I teach a class on those guys. But Jesus, I believe, is in a class by himself. Here's why. Here's why. Four sets of reasons. Number one, I can't begin to make sense of the prophecies in the Old Testament unless I assume that Jesus was more than just a man. Do you know that there are literally hundreds of predictions about the Messiah in the Old Testament and Jesus alone fulfills them? Right in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, starting with verse 15, right after the fall of humanity, the first thing out of God's mouth is, I'm going to fix this. You guys blew it, but I'm going to fix it, and here's how I'm going to fix it. He says to Eve, your seed, a descendant of you, will bruise the head of this serpent. In other words, right from the get-go, you have a prophecy, about 2,000 years before Jesus ever comes onto the scene, a prophecy that one among the human race is going to be able to defeat Satan. That's why the Bible says when Jesus came into the world, his primary objective was to destroy the devil and his works, 1 John 3.8. Not only that, but you have many, many prophecies that specify where he's going to be born, what lineage he's going to have. For example, uh, he has to come from the, the lineage, the descendant, of Abraham, the descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Isaac, a descendant of Jacob, a descendant of Jesse. And with each, with each one of those prophecies, the rest of the human race is ruled out. The Messiah has got to come in this line. He has to be a descendant of David. And it, the whole Old Testament is a way of zeroing in on one person, Jesus Christ. That's why if someone comes along today and says, I am the Messiah, you've got to ask, well, do you fulfill the prophecies about the Messiah? Are you Jewish? That's question number one. And were you born in Bethlehem? That's question number two. Because the Bible says in Micah chapter 5 that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Names the town. 400 years before Jesus is born, it says the Messiah has got to come out of Bethlehem. It says, Oh, Bethlehem, though you are but a little town, out of you shall come the ruler, the house of Jacob. It also says that your goings forth shall be from all eternity. Now, that's interesting. The Messiah is going to be born, and yet he's got to be eternal. How can he be eternal and be born? Well, as God, Jesus is eternal. As human, he is born. He fulfills the prophecy. And so on innumerable prophecies that deal with the person of Jesus Christ. One more example. If you read Isaiah chapter 53, a remarkable picture of Jesus and a remarkable, beautiful picture of what Jesus came to do 
800 years before Jesus comes around. It is said there that Jesus would be pierced. It says that also in Zechariah chapter 12. That the, the one who is Lord will be pierced. Zechariah chapter 12 says, You shall look upon the Lord whom you have pierced. Now that's really interesting because at the time, they did not have a form of execution that involved piercing. Crucifixion wasn't invented until 800 years later. And here he said that he will die by being pierced. In Isaiah 53, it says he'll bear our sorrows, he'll bear our sins, he'll bear our iniquities. But by his bearing our iniquities, his people shall be made righteous. That's exactly what Jesus came to do. He takes on our sin that all who say yes to him take on his righteousness. Then it says in Isaiah 53, I think it's verse 8 or 9, it says he will die with the transgressors, but he'll be buried with the rich. Very interesting. 800 years before Jesus is born. Here's the prophecy. He will die with wicked people, transgressors. And as you know, Jesus was crucified with two thieves. But he'll be buried with the rich. What's interesting is that in the ancient world, criminals were usually not buried. They were thrown out in the field or thrown out in the dump for animals to devour them. And yet here the prophecy is, though he's killed with the wicked, he'll be buried with the rich. And as you know, Joseph of Arimathea, the Bible says, came forward... He was a rich man, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, and after Jesus was crucified, he said, listen, I have a tomb, a wealthy tomb, that he can use, fulfilling the prophecy in detail. The Messiah has got to fulfill those. Jesus alone fulfilled those. As much as I regard some of the teachings, not all of them, but some of the teachings of Muhammad to be insightful, and Buddha to be insightful, and Confucius to be insightful, and Lao Tzu, Lao Tzu the founder of Taoism, to be insightful, you don't have any prophecies about them. You don't have any predictions that come true hundreds of years before they come around, but you have that with Jesus, which is why I believe Jesus is in a class by himself. A second thing about Jesus that's unique, and that is this. He makes some outlandish claims, and he backs them up. Buddha and Muhammad and Zoroaster and Socrates and the rest, they never claimed to be more than divine, I mean more than human. They never claimed to be divine. They never claimed to be God, certainly. But in the person of Jesus Christ, you find just this. Before I was a Christian, my dad and I used to go to this Unitarian church once in a while. Uh, it was kind of an intellectual think tank, and we like to think of ourselves as intellectuals. So we went to this intellectual think tank and would hear a message once in a while. And there was this professor of philosophy who gave a sermon one time, and it was entitled, entitled Why Jesus, or Why Socrates Was a Better Man Than Jesus. That was the title of the sermon. If you can call it a sermon. The talk. Why Socrates was a greater man than Jesus. And here's his argument. It got me thinking. He says, Socrates was a great man because what a great man does is he brings out the inner potential of other people and doesn't draw undue attention to yourself. You help people actualize their potentiality, and having done that, you disappear. And Socrates, he called himself a midwife. He was a midwife of ideas. He was, held there, he was there to help people give birth to ideas, realizing their own inner knowledge and inner creativity and inner intelligence. And once he did that, he stepped aside and just said, well, I just was there to help you discover what you're capable of. And so he was a great man. That's what a great person does. But Jesus, this, this professor said, Jesus, well, if you read the Gospels, now of course the Gospels aren't inspired, we don't believe that, you know, he said. But if you just treat them like historical documents, they, they reflect a little bit of history. You get the impression that Jesus thought he was better than other people. You get the impression that Jesus thought he was above other people. In fact, you get the impression that Jesus thought he was God or something. 
This is why when he died, people started worshiping, people started praying to him. And a great man would not leave people with that impression. You find Jesus calling attention to himself, Jesus making himself an object of faith, and that's not what a great man does. People who do that, we usually consider to be kind of dangerous. Socrates didn't do it, he was a great man, but Jesus did. And see, here's what got me about that message. I wasn't a believer, but I didn't want to make enemies with Jesus, just in case. So I, was raised a good, I was raised a good Catholic boy, you know, and, and, and so I didn't want, you know, I thought Jesus was the bestest guy that ever lived. You know, I was going to go along with that. I just didn't live for him or anything, unless I get fanatical. But now, I was being faced with a decision. I think of Jesus Christ. Is he just a man? Well, if he's just a man, he's not a very good one. Because he doesn't teach and he doesn't talk the way good people think and act and talk and teach. Either he's more than just a man or he's a subpar man. Jesus goes around talking in a way that rabbis never went around talking. He says, well, you've heard it said to you in the Old Testament, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say you better love your enemies. What's he doing putting his own authority and the authority on the same level, even above the authority of the Old Testament? You've heard it say, don't commit adultery. But I say, if you think about adultery, you're already committing it. Who does this guy think he is? And that's why the people around him, they went away saying, we've never heard a man talk with this kind of authority. And some men in positive, like, wow. Others men in negative, like, what an arrogant person. This is why people sometimes picked up stones to stone him. Because to put yourself in God's seat is blasphemy if you're a Jew in the first century. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He made other claims. Blessed are you when you suffer for my sake. When we suffer for your sake. Now, rabbis would often teach, blessed are you if you suffer for God's sake, for Yahweh's sake. Blessed are you if you suffer for righteousness' sake. But no one but no one had the arrogance to go around and say, blessed are you when you're persecuted because of me. Blessed are you when you're, when, when you're martyred because of me. No one said that. But Jesus did. Who does this guy think he is? He even said some more outlandish things, like, I have been sent down from my Father to do the Father's will. People who talk like that, we usually lock up. No, no, you were born. Yeah, but I also came down from heaven. And then he says things like this, I've come down from heaven. John chapter 5, verse 23. I've come down from heaven. Not, or, that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. Now think about this. I've come down from heaven, read it, John chapter 5, verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as in the same way as they honor the Father. What an arrogant. Hey, what would you think of me if I said something like this? Hey, you know what? I want some respect. I'm tired of you guys dissing me all the time. Dave Churchill, I get no respect out of you. I want, I want some respect. Some R-E-S-P-E-C-T. <laughs> think of me like deity. <laughs> just think about me, you know, honor me the way you'd honor God. Uh, you know, all I'm asking for is a little bit of honor. Honor me the way, you know, think about me the way you'd think of God. You'd be out this door. I hope you'd be out this door because you think the guy is either loony or he's crazy or he is one arrogant something or other. <laughs> and this is exactly what Jesus says. He says to, to Philip, Philip says, oh, I wish I just could see the Father. And Jesus says, have I been so long with you and yet you don't know me? If you, if you see me, you see the Father. If you love me, you love the Father. If you reject me, you reject the Father. He who believes in me believes in the Father. Unless you believe in me, you shall perish. Who does this guy think he is? You've got to make a decision here. Either he's a looney tune, crazy man, or in fact, he is who he says he is. But the one position that is not open 
It's the position that people always want to gravitate to, and that's to make Jesus commonsensical, to fit him into our categories, to fit him into our philosophy, to think that he just gave a nice teaching, a good teaching, one of the great prophets. That's the one option that is not open to us. He doesn't allow us that option. He forces a decision. You either should reject him as being the worst hoax, lunatic, phoning religion on the face of the planet, no different from the California cult, except for the fact that a lot of people somehow believe it, or you should bow your knee to the Lord Jesus and say, He is the Lord God here on earth. And base your every breath around Him. Base your life around Him. The last thing Jesus should ever be is a little footnote to what we already think about things. He's either the center or He's nothing. That's the dilemma He poses to us. What do you make of me? Is He a lunatic? Or is He some kind of a charlatan, maybe? Or is He the Lord of all? If He's a lunatic... Answer me this. How come his teachings are by all accounts sublime and his wisdom by all accounts, even his opponents were baffled by it? And how is it he could live a life that is second to none in terms of his love, in terms of his giving, in terms of his outreach? How is it he could live a life such that when he died, people actually said he was sinless? His disciples, there was no sin in him. See, Whatever people are going to say about me after I die, I don't know. But one thing I know they're not going to say, and that's that I was sinless. Uh, no worry there. To even have people think that about you, is that the way lunatics, the reputation lunatics usually get? How was he able to convince his disciples so much that they'd end up believing in him if he was a lunatic or if he was a charlatan? Could he be a charlatan, some guy who was out to make a buck by making himself some kind of messiah? Well, think about it. First of all, what was his motive? I mean, if he, if he ended up wearing a Rolex watch and driving a Porsche, I could understand it, you know? But here he is. If he's a charlatan, he's smart enough to get people to believe in him. And that's, that's no small trick. But he's so stupid, he gets himself crucified. And somehow he's able to pull off a resurrection hoax. I don't get it. It answers nothing to think that he was a lunatic. It answers nothing to say that he was a charlatan. But all the evidence points to him being the Lord God Almighty. Who do you say that I am? A third piece of evidence is this. The disciples say that one of the reasons why they believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God was because of the miracles that he did. The miracles that he did. The Bible records these records which are more or less reliable. You don't have to believe that they're inspired, but there's got to be something behind them. He did. He, he multiplied the loaves and the fishes and fed 5,000. He walked on water. He healed the blind. He healed the deaf. He raised the dead. What do you make of that? The disciples say that one of they believe in him is because he did signs and wonders such as no man they'd ever seen uh, was able to do. He would have had to do something like this to convince them that, in fact, he was divine. You've got to know this about the first century uh, Judaism. One of the most fundamental tenets of faith was that God is God and man is man, and God is not man and man is not God. That was a, a fundamental tenet of their faith. What would it take for a human being, a Jew, to go to his fellow Jews and convince them that, in fact, God was present in him? To overturn one of the most fundamental assumptions of their theology, to convince them in a few short years that, in fact, he was divine. What must Jesus have been like? Well, here's, why, here's what the disciples say. They say that they believe in Jesus because of the miracles that he did. If he didn't do those miracles, then why did they believe in him? If he didn't do miracles, why did the disciples think he did miracles? If he didn't live a blameless life, why did the disciples think he lived a blameless life? What convinced these disciples to the point where they were willing to go out and die for their faith? 
The last thing you can say is that they were trying to make this whole thing up. If they were trying to make the whole thing up, they could have done a lot better job than what they did. If you read the Gospels, if you get anything out of them, you see that they're just honest documents. Honest documents. These disciples, they portray themselves in real negative light. They're kind of dull-witted. They're slow. They don't get things. They've got a kind of a detail that you'd expect from the eyewitness accounts. But most importantly, they portray Jesus in terms that they would not want to portray Jesus if they were trying to sell Jesus. For example, Jesus is on the cross. He cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now wait, wait a second here. If you're trying to sell Jesus as the Messiah, and you're making up a story, now why you'd want to make up a story and get yourself killed, that, that's another problem. But let's say you did have a motive for making this up. Would anybody in their right mind put that into the mouth of Jesus? That's the last thing you'd expect the Messiah to be saying on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? But there it is in, in, all, in, in the three synoptic Gospels. He's just crying out on the cross. The only motive they could have ever had for putting that in the mouth of Jesus is because Jesus actually said that. The Gospels are honest, and they say the reason they believe, they accept that what Jesus claimed about himself was true was in part because of the miracles. If you don't believe that, then what's your alternative explanation? What did change the disciples' life? What did motivate the disciples? What turned their theology upside down? Who do you think Jesus Christ was? Now, this doesn't prove beyond a shadow of a doubt on historical evidence that he was the Son of God. You can't prove anything but beyond a, 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 a shadow of a doubt. But the question is this. What is the reasonable risk to take? To believe in him takes a little bit of faith. To not believe in him also takes faith. You're going to wager your eternity on the hope that he was a liar. On the hope that the whole thing is a hoax. What is the evidence for that? Think clearly here. Think clearly here. A lot hangs on this decision. The final thing, fourth thing that leads me to believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Though You know what? I want to tell you this. Faith has never come easy for me. I love the emotional stuff, but you know what? I could never believe something on the basis of how it made me feel. I'm just not wired that way, and I've had to struggle with this stuff a lot. Do I really believe this? I believe that a five foot four, 126-pound Jew was God. That's a weird belief. And I'm not going to believe it unless there's very, very good, irrefutable reasons to believe it. And I believe those reasons are here. And that's why I believe it. The final reason why I believe it is the resurrection. And that's what we're celebrating here this morning. The resurrection. He died on the cross, and three days later, the tomb was empty, and he appeared to his disciples. Here's what's interesting about the resurrection. Now, I had a whole sermon on this last year. We give out the tape in the visitor's room. If you don't have it, and, and you're wondering about this, I encourage you to go get it. We give it to you for free. But here's the bottom line with it. We have got five, five independent, five independent accounts of resurrection. We know they're all independent, because they're so different. In fact, one problem is, how do you harmonize all these accounts? Now, that's not weird. Whenever you have a lot of different accounts of one event, you always have discrepancies. There are discrepancies here in the, in the five gospel accounts. Four gospel accounts, and we also have Paul writing about 20 years after the event in 1 Corinthians. They're independent. One thing is clear. They didn't sit down and say, okay, let's get our story straight here. Let's get all the details straight, because all the details disagree. Five independent witnessing accounts of the resurrection. All of them are relatively early. Paul's, we know, was written about 15 to 20 years after the resurrection. And the Gospels were written within one or two generations of that. We know that for two reasons. Number one, we have the Gospels being quoted at the end of the first century, which tells us that they had to be written before the end of the first century. But not only that, now follow me on this here, it gets a little detailed. 
But there's a lot of internal evidence in the Gospels that, that historians can use to date them. This is what we do with documents. We look at internal references, little incidental things that help us date, beyond a shadow of a doubt, or as much as we can, certainty as we can attain on this, to date the Gospels. Let me give you one piece of evidence here. Mark chapter 15. This is important, so we've got to think. Let's think. Listen to this. Now, this is the kind of verse that you would ordinarily not even notice, but historians find this to be very interesting. This is Mark's passion account, which is the, his account of the death and resurrection. And Mark says this, They compelled a passerby who was coming in from the country to carry the cross of Jesus, because Jesus was falling down the ground. So they got a passerby. Now, in parentheses, Mark adds this. This was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. You're going, well, so what? Well, think, think for a second here. This was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Two things are interesting here. Number one, we got what's called an ossuary. It was a container that they used to put the bones uh, and the ashes of, of uh, relatives in after they were buried in Jewish culture. We have an ossuary, and it is two, or it's not two, it is of, the bones are, they belong to one whose, the name is Alexander, the son of Simon of Cyrene. It's over there in Israel. As dated in the first century. We know that from the, from, the ling, from the linguistics of it. It's possible, I think likely, though not certain, that we have the bones of Alexander. That we've recovered that. This is a real life person we're talking about. But even more important is this. The author assumes here that everyone knows who Alexander and Rufus is. He just throws it out. Oh yeah, Simon. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. That shows you that at the time he's writing, people, they're contemporaries with the sons of the guy who carried the cross. Which tells you that this is being written within one generation of the cross. Within probably 10 or 20, at the most 30 years. Because Alexander and Rufus are still around. The bottom line is this. You've got five independent accounts. They are all relatively early. That, by historical standards, is unprecedented. There is no other event or person in the ancient world for which we have better attestation than the person of Jesus Christ and no single event for which we have better attestation than the resurrection. So the question is this. Who do you think Jesus Christ is? What are you going to wager your life on? What is your bet here? The disciples say that they believe that he's the Son of God because the tomb was empty and they saw him rise from the dead. If that's not true, then why do they think he rose from the dead? They believe in Jesus Christ because of the miracles. If that isn't true, then why did they think Jesus did miracles? Who do you think Jesus Christ is? The issue is before you. The one option that is close to you is to think that you can have a morally neutral position with him. I don't like to make things always black and white, and things usually aren't black and white, but this one is. With Jesus Christ, it's an all or nothing deal. He's either Lord of your life, you're living for him, you're surrendered to him, you believe in him, you make him savior, or you don't get what he's about. You don't get what he's about. This Easter morning, I want to invite every person in this congregation who has not made this decision, and you there in the visitor's room, this is so weird to have a camera looking at me. Hi, everybody there in the room, way back. I want to extend this invitation to you as well to think seriously on this. This is an important decision. Who do you think Jesus Christ was? And if your mind is saying yes, and if your heart is saying yes, I encourage you to say yes. What you find is this, and there's a lot of people in this room that will testify about this. 
When you say yes to Jesus Christ, it no longer is just a theory. It becomes a living reality. And they say the proof of the pudding is in the eating, Well, the proof of the pudding in Christianity is in the believing. It's not a blind faith, but it takes faith. But when you make that leap of faith, when you take that step and say yes to him, then the Bible says his resurrection power begins to live within you. In fact, I want to end this, this message by, by re-proclaiming re our faith and our yes to Jesus Christ. So choir, why don't you start to come out here? But listen to this. Ignore the choir for a second. He says his resurrection power begins to live in you, and you begin to see the difference. God proves himself to be true, but first it means you stepping out on faith. You'll find that you have a power to overcome the addictions in your life. That's the resurrection power. God lives out his resurrected life inside of you. Power to put your marriage back together. Power to put your family back together. Power to put your mind back together. He gives you power to find joy in the midst of despair and hope in the midst of hopelessness. That's the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And if you will say yes to God's invitation, he's here this morning just saying, will you believe? Will you believe? You put your trust in Jesus Christ. You say, yes, I will sell out to you. He takes residency in, in, inside of you.